The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, ERs light up the night sky and all the cell phones on earth ring simultaneously with excitement with the possibility of containing such wondrous verbiage. Stratospheric pillar-sitting saints and paleolithic wallowers in mud and bone. Well, as we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have the second entry in a multi-part interview with David Weber and Jacob Hollow. They are talking about their big new time travel space fighting novel, The Valkyrie Protocol. David and Jacob discuss the characters, all taken from various timelines and universes. It's one of those time travel uh, books. The amazing setting of twisted universes and the excellent story which involves the Black Plague and an even scarier black hole that's sucking up universes in time itself. So that is coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. It's a Weber Palooza. Now here's the news. Don't forget the October post-apocalypse ebook sale. Until the stroke of midnight on Halloween, save big on John Ringo eBooks. Save $2 per eBook in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising original series, plus $1 off on all other John Ringo eBooks. This includes all the things we sell on Amazon, Bain.com, and elsewhere. Everywhere eBooks are distributed by Bain. Sale begins Saturday, October 3rd, and it runs through Halloween Eve. We have three great e-arcs now available at Bain.com. Now an e-arc is the flash in the sky right before the sunrise on the sea of serenity on the moon, which tends to spark over to the sea of crisis and wreak havoc with the regolith. No, 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 that's not what an e-arc is at all. An e-arc is an electronic advanced reading copy. We sell these to you three or four months before the book comes out in print. This is the book after the copy edit and before the final proofread, and it's available to you in ebook form directly, early, 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 fresh, 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 because reading the very latest from great authors is cool, cool, cool. Now out in eARC format is the Jupiter Knife eARC by DJ Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie. An ancient evil haunts the land. Southeastern Utah, 1934. A dark and ancient conspiracy is afoot in a small town set amid endless hills of warped and twisted sandstone. Local law enforcement seems powerless to stop a murderous magic from claiming victim after victim. Unraveling the plot will require a man of skill, a man equally at ease with magic and reason, a good man, a man of humility, but also a cunning man. Hiram Woolley has these qualities, but his practice command of old world broker skill and folklore magic may have met its match when faced with the primeval curse as ancient as human history itself. And now out in the art form is the Macedonian Hazard by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. 
Stranded in a distant past of hope and strife, cruise ship Queen of the Sea has been accidentally transported from the modern-day present to the ancient Mediterranean not long after the death of Alexander the Great. Now Captain Lars Flodden and the other ship people attempt to plant the seeds of 21st century civilization in the distant past. Finally, out now is the e-art for Domesticating Dragons by Dan Cobalt. The dragons are among us. In the near future, all the dogs are dead from an incurable plague. The solution? Domesticated dragons. Noah Parker, a brilliant young genetic engineer, is thrilled to land his dream job, helping Reptilian Corp put dragons in every home. But while happily creating custom-built dragons, Noah discovers that Reptilian Corp itself may not be all that it seems, delving into dangerous matters that someone very powerful does not wish discovered. Noah must seek the key to a secret locked in the genetic heart of a new breed of science-made dragons. The E-Arc editions of Domesticating Dragons by Dan Cobalt, The Macedonian Hazard by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett and Gorg Huff, and the Jupiter Knife E-Arc by DJ Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie are now available in all e-book formats at Bain.com. Taste them, try them. You'll get them sooner than anybody else besides me and the authors, and let me tell you, they are piping hot reading goodness. This is part two of a multi-part interview with David Weber and Jacob Hollow talking about the Valkyrie Protocol. Part three will be available next time on the podcast. Well, welcome David Weber and Jacob Hollow to the podcast. Hello, folks, guys. Hi. Hello. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you back in Technicolor this time. Um, David Weber is the creator of the Honor Harrington series, the Oath of Sword series, and well, about a billion other series, including one called the Gordian Division. There are more than 8 million copies of his books in print, and 33 titles so far have made the New York Times bestseller list, um, according to uh, Marla Ainspan here, our tabulator. And she should know. Yeah. She should know. Um, who is the associate publisher at Bain, by the way. He's collaborated with many excellent authors, uh, including Starfire on the Starfire series with Steve White, the Empire Man series with John Ringo, the Multiverse series more recently with um, Joel Presby, Linda Evans before, the Ring of Fire series with Eric Flint, um, among others. And uh, that's just to touch on some of the things that David has done. And now the Gordian Division series with Jacob Hollow. Jacob Hollow graduated from Youngstown State University with a degree in electrical and controls engineering. Go he is the author of eight books, including two Gordian Division novels written with David Weber. Between novels, Jacob enjoys gaming of all sorts, whether video gaming, card gaming, miniature war gaming, or, or watching speedruns on YouTube. He is a former Ohioan, which is a very difficult thing to say, by the way. I practice <laughs> a former Ohioan. Well, you realize I was born in Cleveland. <laughs> you are a former Clevelander. I am a former Ohioan Clevelander. Very former in my case. <laughs> former Michigander who now lives in South Carolina with his wife boss and his cat boss. Um, and out now at Booksellers Everywhere is the Valkyrie Protocol, which really looks cool when I hold it up because it's green. <laughs> it's very ghostly. Well, 
Yes. When you look at it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there you go. So, Ooh. I think this is... Well, um, our, the Plague of Justinian happens in the Byzantine Empire. Um, what is it like? Uh, 541 is when it starts. Yeah, and this is uh, the which is an old Bane trope, which is Belisarius um, survives, and um, he, he's a great because Jim Bane loved Belisarius. Yes, yes, so. he loved him some Belisarius. Yeah. Well, okay, Jacob, you really built the technology of what they were trying to do and originally structured the interaction of the time travelers with the 6th century Byzantines. Um, and then and I knew going into that, that, uh, you know, just given where my strengths are and where my strengths are not, <laughs> um, that uh, you were going to have to come through and, you know, work on those scenes. Yeah. Um, my, my focus at the time when I was working on the first draft of those scenes was to, you know, establish a, a strong foundation for you to build upon. And I, yeah. I go ahead. That was what I was going to say is, and I, I want you to talk about it in, in, in just a minute, but what Jacob had done, we, we had discussed where we wanted to go with the book. And then we had had a conference where we threw everything we discussed away and in two hours, like restructured the entire book. Um, Jacob did not know about ooh shiny moments when he decided that he would work with me. He now knows about ooh shiny <laughs> moments. Uh, but the, um, we'd, we'd structured the general, this is, this is what's going to happen. And then Jacob structured the actual time travel and the events that took place in terms of the technology that was available to them, what they had when they lost it and everything else. And then he wrote enough material going through there to make everything he'd done work. Okay. So Jacob, um, I think you're probably the best one to talk about the technology that they do have and how they apply it. Um, so well, before you do that, I would like to discuss my favorite scene in the book, which is when uh, Theodora takes on those two uh, Byzantine soldiers. <laughs> he, okay, that I was originally Jacob. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, Jacob, so, you want to? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, that's, um, you know, the first draft of that's my scene. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, it's uh, Theodora and Samuel Peets. They are... Um, basically uh, scoping out uh, uh, Antioch and uh, they're still in their rather strange garb and they have some uh, essentially cloaked little drones that are going around and feeding them images back and they're really focused on that and like you know maybe we should snag some clothes uh, so we can perhaps have a better chance of blending in and two soldiers show up. And <laughs> the other thing is, is Theodore is not physically entirely human. Well, actually, she is or, entire. She is entirely human. She just happens to be living in a synthetic body, which exactly yes, replicates yeah, yeah. her. If you've read um, any of the Safehold books, okay, um, this is basically what uh, the the. Uh, 
Terran, the Terran Federation of the Savehold books would have considered considered a liberated pika. Okay, she's she is a, a legal person. She's the person she was when she was still flesh and blood. She's just uploaded herself into the synthetic body, which has a few upgrades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, they they try to take her in, and at at this point, she's just she's just had it. <laughs> she's had she's, a really bad she's, day. <laughs> she's had a really, really rough, you know, yeah, rough couple of days. And, you know, those temporal to, shipwrecks will do it to you every time. You know, so <laughs> she she just tosses him like a rag doll. Um, you well, know, in, I, in addition to her synthetic body with all this strength and whatnot, art is required. You got to have your implants and whatnot. You're required to download unarmed combat techniques. So he's, he's basically taking on, uh, you know, uh, a karate expert who is like 10 times as strong as a normal human being and whatnot. And I think there's, there's a moment in there where one of the soldiers is like, what are you? And she says, I'm a historian that just headbutts the guy, breaks his nose. Doesn't, doesn't he accuse her of being a demon? And she says, no, yeah, I'm worse than yeah, that. I'm a historian. You just don't want to pick on historians. Yeah, that, that, is, that is absolutely Jacob in, in, in that scene. I tinkered a little tiny bit with the dialogue from the, uh, from the Byzantine soldiers. But everything else that that was that was yeah. pure Jacob and I. Well, it's really fun because it's like that. Scene. It's like that super in the in the first Superman movie where Superman comes back and he's got his powers back and and those guys try to beat him up again and no, yeah. so. <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway, <laughs> so um, and this is sort of the the identity that Theodora takes as she goes forward in this past is that of a Valkyrie. Yeah, um, of the yeah. Valkyrie, really. Um, and that's why, I mean, this, so this is where we're getting the title. It, yes, yes. Part of the title from. Yeah. Okay, one of the things that we had to figure out how to do, and Jacob structured this too uh, when we got there, is they had to go back with tools that would let them make significant changes in the history that they, with which they were interacting. But they had to be handicapped in a way that would present them from just saying, okay, fine, we're going to integrate 30th century technology into the 6th century and be off and running. And uh, we managed that by blowing up two-thirds of their time travel ship (laughs) and letting the rest crash from a couple of thousand feet. (laughs) Um, But so go, Jacob, because you're the the one who built that. Well, you know, they... uh... Part of it is that, uh, um, you know, they uh, they thought that they got away scot-free. Um, and this is where the relationship between Siskov and the admin uh, starts to take a turn. Yes. And take a turn in a positive direction. For a change. <laughs> For a change. Now, explain, <laughs> yeah. explain what you mean by they got away scot-free. So they... They did not go back in time with their bosses thinking they were going to go and stop the plague of Justinian, right? Well, the, they this didn't go back in time with their boss's approval at all. Uh, their, their mission had been approved, and it was going to be this little minor thing of re- returning peeps. 
yeah. uh, and observing what happened. And what they actually meant to do is as soon as they got out from under mom's thumb, they were going to go scooting back to to the black play Justinian anyway. Yeah. But their permission got revoked because Jacob killed another universe. Um, Two, and, actually. Yes, and the news of having killed the other universes arrived just as their mission had been approved. Everybody says, are you crazy? This is not the time for us to be pulling around with this stuff, etc. So since they had lost permission, they stole the Corona port <laughs> and went back on their own. <laughs> and because... Um, uh, the the, uh, the the TTV, the trans-temporal vehicle that they had, is basically uh, almost the fastest one that Cisco has available. Um, they, they have uh, two that are faster, but they're so, um, they're pure science vessels and they're not maneuverable enough. They couldn't, um, they could catch up, but they would just overshoot and they, they think, couldn't bring them in. Think the so, difference between an F-15 and a Saturn V. The Saturn V could catch up with the F-15, but it couldn't stop real well. <laughs> that, that's actually, yeah, yeah, that's a very good analogy. There. Yeah. So um, really all they, they could do is have a, another time machine pursuing them, but they could never gain on them. And because um, the kind of temporal wake that's created, um, they're half blind anyway. Yeah, I think of it um, as the bow wave that you can't mm -hmm. see through. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Gordian division thinks that they've, they've gotten away. And then uh, Jonas uh, Shigeki. Um, the son, the son, the of, son the, yeah. of, of Saba Shigeki, uh, who is uh, uh, with the, uh, uh, the admin ambassador, um, says that, uh, you know. <laughs> okay, but before you, get, before you go there, okay, Cisco knows how to move back and forth between universes. The admin doesn't have that tech at the beginning of this book. And Cisco has been very careful not to give it to them. Okay. So what is, what is, what does Jonas say? <laughs> that, you know, it, it, let me, let me just, you know, show this graph of, okay, here's, you know, what you know, the, the, the rogue time machine is doing and here's your pursuit craft. And here's a third line. Um, and see, you know, and this is, you know, if we had that technology, we could bring one of our chronoports over here, which and is a we lot faster catch up <laughs> yes. because we have a speed advantage. Um, uh, we just can't cross between from one universe to the other. And it's like, oh man, you know, I'd love to be able to help you guys, but and, uh, we're, we're just sorry. I, while, while you think about it, I think they're serving Chinese down in the cafeteria, <laughs> yeah. and I'm feeling a little munchy. <laughs> so they just head out the room, and you know, all the Cisco people are there, and Rybert's like, we're, we're, we're not, not going to do, do this, do are something we? this foolish, are we? <laughs> and then they looks around, he says, are we? And the next thing you see is him reporting for duty with... <laughs> with admin while they go back we really are going to do something this too yeah well and and one of the advantages of of this scene we, it had to happen because we needed for admin to have that tech for the climactic portion of the book but the way that admin gets it the way that it's given to them gives us an additional opportunity to show that the guys from admin aren't really monsters. There's a particular moment uh, in the pursuit, and this was in, in, in Jacob's original draft. I did very, I 
I don't know that I did anything uh, with this scene. I might have smoothed a little dialogue here or there. But uh, Jonas is talking to, to, to Raybert. Um, and Raybert wants to try and talk them down talk them into coming back. And Jonas is saying, you know, that's way too risky. They've, they've got a powerfully armed craft. They've already tried to kill us, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and, and Raybert is forced to acknowledge that Jonas is right. And then Jonas says, okay, now that we've got that established, let's see what we can do about getting them back alive. And Raybert is like, but you said, and Jonas said, I needed you to acknowledge that if we can't, you know, but we will do our best to, to get them back alive. And it's, it's a small moment that, that, that Jacob worked in. I mean, it's like maybe a third of a page, okay? But it is an absolutely laser-focused peak inside the way that Jonas's brain really works the way that his personality really works and it is also really the first opening of the door for Raybert you think yeah yeah uh, and that's that's <laughs> I mean I, I think the the admin is still always going to be the effing admin to him yes but well I don't um, know they turned him into fertilizer I can't imagine why <laughs> you know hold a grudge <laughs> but uh that's I think um like the first point where he actually uh, sees hope that, hey, you know, we, we can, our two societies can actually, you know, get along and not just exist together, but, you know, work, you know, and I, integrate together. I think what's interesting is that the primary reason for that scene to exist was for Raybert to have that moment. I mean, that was the, the real reason for that scene to be written. But the effect that it had in humanizing Jonas and letting us further inside him for the reader, not just Raybert, was a really, really good uh, example of the kind of serendipity that good writing produces. Okay, when you get done with a scene and you look at it, and you realize that it has facets you weren't even aware of when you were writing it. It wasn't what you were trying to do, but by golly, look, we did this as well. Um, and this I is have the, this is the other uh, uh, storyline in the book. This is Raybert, uh, and and a, a lot of it has to do with the fact there are two universes, Admin and the Cisco universe. They're not just different societies; they exist in different places. Um, they they exist on different timelines and different. Yeah, different, yeah, different, different universes, yeah. Universes, and so, and, and both of them have learn are learning that they have a common interest in protecting the 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 timelines and well, okay, their own Sh existence. Right? Shigeki's universe, Admin, is an offshoot of the same root universe as Cisco, but the point of separation has been far enough ago. Jacob designed so the mechanism. really real is not. They both are. But yes. the thing is, the thing is that they are. Hang on a second. Eric, I'm in the middle of a podcast with Tony right now. <laughs> uh, probably, yes. 
Anyway, um, what was, oh, um, there is no longer a point of contiguity between admin and Cisco. Uh, Jacob came up with what I thought was a, a really neat mechanism for it's like, okay, here's the point at which these two universes separate. And then they kind of peel apart going in both directions, past and, and future. And eventually, they separate entirely. Until they do, there's still a linkage uh, between them. And admin and Cisco have entirely separated from one another. The problem is when the Valkyrie universe catches up with uh, the 30th century, they are still very, very close together, and they haven't fully separated all the way back into the past. So the Valkyrie universe is associated with Cisco, but not with admin. So in theory, admin is immune to anything that happens in the Cisco slash Valkyrie universe. However, Jacob likes big stumpy robots, and he also likes big Death Stars. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> guilty as charged. Yes, yes. So he built the time traveling Death Star. Well, we don't want to talk too much about that, but there is a very large time travel spaceship battle. Mm. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> There's two. One of them goes better than the other one. <laughs> and, and um, okay. One of the primary things that I did when I got involved with Jacob's rough draft um, is that the biggest thing that I did was to go back and, uh, rewrite and add to the scenes in the in the sixth century uh for example ephraim wasn't in the original manuscript and um the actual scene where um where theodora uh interacts with justinian wasn't in there um most of the rest of it except for polishing a little bit here there you know tweaking a little bit of dialogue uh i think i probably changed a couple of, of uh, sentences here and there that were narrative, but very little. Uh, most of the rest of it is exactly the way that Jacob had structured it in the original rough draft, um, including the, um, the, the final battle sequence. Um, Which was the hardest action set piece that I have ever worked on. Welcome to my world. <laughs> well, not only in plotting it out, mm -hmm. but but also in um, uh, you know uh, writing, track. communicating what was going on to the reader. Well, um, not, because I... because you're dealing with um, military vessels that have four axes of motion. You know, you know X Y. Z and T, <laughs> you know, they can dodge into last week. Um, and so, uh, well, they actually, they actually have still an additional axis because in theory they could dodge from one universe to another one. Yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, once, once we get the, uh, the multiverse part of it in, into it, there are actually seven spatial dimensions to keep track of. Uh, <laughs> and a, another part of it is 
that when you have a battle that's as intense and spread over as much space and so forth as this one is, you have to be careful about keeping track of the casualties that have been taken. Okay, remembering how many ships you have left after you've just blown up 17 more of them or, or whatever. I um, a lot of spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. What are, what is, what is some of the weapons that they have in the tech nine? They're, um, what are they, what are they fighting with? And, and, um, what is this theoretical thing called the C bomb? Um, well, the C bomb is sort of the F bomb of the, <laughs> of the Gordian universe. Yeah. It's the big F bomb. <laughs> um, it's the, it's the Moab, you know, the mother of all bombs. Um, well, the, the weapons mix is, uh, you know, we got particle beams, we got lasers, uh, we got missiles, uh, we've got um, kinetic uh, cannon, sea guns, uh, the, the kind of, a, you know, the sort of standard, I guess, in a way, uh, really high-tech military hardware mix. Um, and as Jacob says, you've got these ships who are employing this while dodging through all these multiple dimensions. Plus, you've got the portcullis class, uh, which is uh, an admin design that can inhibit the operation of phase fields in its vicinity so that people can't dodge in and out as much. Um, but the C-bomb is... Okay, how do we do this without giving away too much of the plot? Well, don't give away anything. Well, wait, wait, wait. Okay, here's the thing. The C-bomb can solve the problem for Cisco at a very high cost to other universes. And the problem is they're not absolutely sure that when they set it off, it won't also kill off Cisco. It's just their best shot. Um, does that seem to cover it, Jacob? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. I mean, there, there are also the, uh, the phase missiles. Oh, yes, I forgot um, those, yes. Lucius's that... contribution. <laughs> they, so... uh, they can actually go after somebody who is phasing out to evade your fire, which standard missiles can't. They have phase drives in them. That was one of the cleverer things. So, so not only does this uh, third group have a time-traveling Death Star, but they can park this thing in last week and launch essentially an infinite supply of nuclear-tipped miniature time machines, the phase missiles, into the present. And if you don't have time travel, you can't defend against this <laughs> at all. Yeah. What are the, I mean... Don't get most, by the way, and most, most planets don't have time travel. I yeah. just thought I'd throw that out. <laughs> yeah. Part of the, uh, the, the... We should talk about this theoretically because it will give too much away, but there is this, the cool idea. One of the cool ideas in the book is the idea of um, temporal replication and the consequences thereof. And one of the sides has this as, because they don't care. <laughs> well, sorry. most of them don't know. Yes. Yes. The only, the only people who know don't care. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're not, which is a cool idea, um, and, and I've always thought it would be great to be able to just, you know, make things by taking the future version and remaking it and remaking it. Well, one of the things there, that, Jacob, that just seems like it's going to cause problems somehow. One of the things that Jacob very much wanted to do was to establish some hard limits. Um, he and I both 
agree. I think that what matters the most is what your character can't do rather than what your character can do. Um, and when you look at it on the face of it, if you can go back and you can bring the library of Alexandria to the present and it's still there, there's no reason you can't do it with an air conditioning unit or whatever else you want. So Jacob, you want to explain why that's a, like a really bad idea? <laughs> well, um, I mean, from, from a, you know, a story standpoint and, you know, uh, a series longevity standpoint, having an ability like temporal replication without any sort of limits on it is, in my opinion, I think David, you agree with me, is simply too powerful a tool to leave at, you know, in the, the character's uh, toolkit. It, it's, it's a god weapon. Uh, if nothing else, everybody's trapped in the buffers of the transporter. Nobody dies. Because all you do is you go back and you grab them from 20 minutes before they died. You bring them back to the back with you to the future. And they're like, okay, fine. Here I am. All right. Um, but Jacob was absolutely right uh, that this was something that had to be nailed down uh, within limits that were manageable for the storyteller. And uh, it, it becomes a MacGuffin. It becomes a, a plot turning point because it's such a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. um, well, and because logically, unless you are aware of the physics reason why it's a really bad idea, it is the ideal solution to any scarcity problem. Okay. Um, the Siskov is, for all intents and purposes, a post-scarcity economy. Uh, Jacob and I kind of went around and around a little bit on that. Uh, and, and he explained to me that, well, it's not a totally post-scarcity economy because they need a lot of exotic matter to make this all work. And the exotic matter is the choke point in their economy, which makes perfectly good sense. Um, but without some reason why you can't just replicate stuff, then you're kind of where Larry Niven was with Ringworld when he'd produced all the devices you could possibly need to solve a problem. There was no longer something the characters couldn't do. Okay. And we didn't want to break the transporter every episode. So, and I thought, I thought, I thought Jacob handled it in an elegant uh, fashion, uh, the way that he set up the, 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 the mechanism for why, well, it seemed like a good idea, but oh boy, it wasn't uh, kind of thing. Let's, let's shift over to the other problem that, that's going on, which is um, in Raybert uh, Kaminsky and the transtemporal vehicle Cleo and, um, and Elsbieta and Ben Schroeder and, uh, and our Viking uh, AI, uh, Philo, yeah, Philo, Philo, Philosophus, um, otherwise known as Philo. They are they are on this. They've encountered something um, in their travels back, and it's not a good. Uh, they pick up a girl um, who has escaped from something horrible, and they're almost sucked into this thing. What is it, Jacob? You're the so, one who makes universes go bang. <laughs> well, well. It, okay, does it go bang? All right, <laughs> I give you that. Okay. So, um, what they uh, they get swept up in is a universe that is undergoing an implosion, 
And it's not an implosion in a physical sense. It's not like, you know, the, the, the big crunch, you know, in terms of like, you know, the, all, all the matter in the universe having enough pull and then contracting back to, a, you know, a, you know, whatever physics predicts the, the big crunch would be. Um, it is an implosion of its timeline. And um, what uh, that, uh, that character, uh, Sarah, uh, sees um, is essentially pieces of their present being pulled into the past and just vanishing from, from the present. And so their timeline, the entire timeline of that universe is collapsing inward on itself. Actually, her universe is not collapsing inward on itself. <laughs> there is a, uh, an adjacent universe that is actually undergoing the implosion and it's having, uh, you can think of it like a, uh, you know, uh, a balloon deflating is I think uh, an analogy that, that we might touch on. And this other uh, universe that is uh, branched off of it, that's the one Sarah's from, Mm -hmm. um, is essentially suffering um, a fate that uh, Siskov could suffer uh, in this book. Yeah, the, the, the point of separation for these two universes is, is recent enough that they're still close enough together in a transuniversal sense that when the wall of the original parent universe ruptures, it produces a rupture in the wall of its daughter universe. And the implosive force is great enough that it's draining both universes down the original stem. Okay. And the problem that Siskov has when they realize that there's another universe that could do this is that it's a child universe that is only very recently separated from them. And if it goes, they almost certainly go with it. And, and they have, this is the, what happened to these two universes over here provides their theoretical model for understanding what may happen to them in similar circumstances. So this is, this is the, the black hole of time. Um, the, the, the really bad thing that can, yeah. can happen. And it is, um, uh, you know, ultimately it's related to the other story that we've been, that we're following with Theodora and, mm -hmm. and Lucius and the, and the Byzantines as well, of course. Yeah. I would say that rather than it's being related to that story, it is what informs one set of actors in that story of the potential consequences. There is no physical connection of any sort between those two universes and any of our universes. Um, so in terms of a direct physical impact, there isn't one. In terms of understanding what's happening, it's absolutely crucial to both the reader and the characters in the book. So there's two different, I mean, in the first book you established how a universe could disappear and now you have another way <laughs> <laughs> listen listen he's got a third one in mind too people i just want you to know um people who accuse me of killing characters <laughs> you would if only they knew i have promised david 
Yes, I know. I not. <laughs> I'm just this. reminding you every time I get a chance. Okay. <laughs> Another two well, You're books. both complicit. As you're both the greatest mass murderers in, in all of history at this point. Well, I think, I think one of the We things, murdered history itself. <laughs> yes. Well, the, the, the sequel to, um, to Valkyrie, which J, oh, Jacob has finished the rough draft on and already gotten to me, um, is uh, very much uh, a change of pace. Um, it is uh, much more of, we think of it as our police procedural novel. Um, and what we're looking at is probably ongoing. This is a series, but it's not a series like any of my other series, because all my other series, I had a start point and I had a projected end point. Okay. For this one, I have a projected start point. And the series is just going to be, you know, built on what happened in the preceding books. So it's going to be open-ended in that sense, but it's also not going to have a bunch of on of, of plot strands that are unresolved in this book because I'm planning on resolving them somewhere further down the road. So each of them will be a, uh, a satisfactory read in its own right. Well, well, you've created the possibility of this episodic structure by the fact that you have a time patrol. Mm. <laughs> the well, division. We, we have, but thing. we're, our episodic, the way we're looking at it, goes further than that. Uh, if you look at um, Piper's Paracops, basically the characters, the, the, the episodes were, were completely disconnected, except by the fact that they had common characters in them. Okay, as this series goes along, we're going to be spending more time with the characters and the societies themselves than Piper did. And so one of the one of the elements of this series is going to be the character growth and the growth of the societies and the exploration of them in ways that Piper's story format just didn't allow for where the parent societies were concerned. You see what I'm saying? Um, and in this book, basically, you have uh, a criminal investigation. Uh, that involves uh, time travel uh, and other interesting things. Um, and Jacob got a reading assignment uh, before before we, we did this. Uh, we Tony and I, between us, uh, introduced him to a writer that I think he's become rather fond of. Oh, Ed McBain. Yes. 87th oh, Precinct. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, uh, those, those are so good. That, that's how you do police procedurals, okay? Um, I mean, uh, when, when I was uh, when I was reading those books, this was, you know, basically my first introduction to um, police procedurals, and I was like, man, where have these books been all my life? And it was like, um, you know, the the rough draft for book three it was my first. Um, time writing a police procedural, obviously one with a very strong science fiction element, but ultimately a police procedural. And it's like, wow, I really like writing sci-fi police procedurals. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do more of these. See, that's, that's why we're going to keep it from blowing up universes. If you don't blow up a universe, I'll let you write another police procedure. Uh, but what we are looking at probably going down the road is that the ones that have universe-shaking events in them 
and wind up uh, with uh, new rules having to be laid down governing how time travel and whatnot works, they will probably all have protocol in the title um, because the Valkyrie protocol at the end of this book is a specific uh, addition to the, the rules and the laws governing time travel, which both the admin and Syscov have signed off on. Um, and so there will be future protocols down the road. And the Gordian um, protocol is don't go back in time and rape and kill and pillage. Pretty um, much. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, That's although the we the, start. The, the, what actually caused the problem in the Gordian protocol was not anything that art had done. Um, nobody knew what caused the problem in the Gordian Protocol until they fixed the problem in the Gordian Protocol. Now, there's another, there's another component of this time travel stuff that uh, Jacob built in that I thought was really good. Um, he built in uh, an absolute clock. Okay. Um, the, the, the true present or the edge of existence is as far as time has gone yet. So you can't travel into the future from there because the future hasn't happened yet. Um, you can travel into the past. But when you travel into the past, what you do there is still, in a sense, pegged to the progress of time that you left. Jacob, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, it's like saying Robert goes back uh, in, in time when he was uh, working for the Antiquities Rescue Trust. Um, and he spends, you know, a month on assignment, and then he goes back to uh, the 30th century. A month has passed in the 30th century. So one of the... Uh, That was part two of a multi-part interview with David Weber and Jacob Hollow talking about the Valkyrie Protocol. Part three will be available next time on the podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization, but the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. HMS Fafnir, Task Force 31, 3rd Fleet, Beowulf Terminus. Actually, Marianne, I thought the exercise went very well, Admiral Alice Truman said as the stewards cleared away the supper dishes. For what it was, yes, ma'am, 
Vice Admiral Marianne Holman Sanders replied, a bit more formally than she was in the habit of addressing Truman. It's just that all my people feel like we're only marking time until they scrap our ships, like we're not pulling our weight in the defense of our own star system. Truman frowned at Holman Sanders across the table in her dining cabin. The diminutive Beowulfer, she wasn't quite 155 centimeters tall, who commanded Third Fleet's second task force, was a solid professional. She might look like someone's pre-prolonged teenage sister, but no one who'd ever seen her on a super dreadnought's flag bridge would make that mistake. At the moment, however, what she looked most was pissed. Not at Truman, her task force commander, but at the weapon she'd been given, or at fate, perhaps. If your people think you aren't pulling your weight, you're the only ones who do, Truman said a bit sternly. Oh, we don't think it's because we're slacking, ma'am. Holman Sanders shook her head. What we think is that at this moment, all the other members of the Grand Alliance will do any real fighting while we sort of stand there with our thumbs up our backsides and watch. She grimaced. Let's face it, none of our wallers is even in shouting distance of your wallers. There's something to that. Truman conceded after a thoughtful sip of coffee. She set her cup down, trapped it in an open diamond formed by her thumbs and forefingers, and frowned down into it. Then she looked back up at Holman Sanders. Compared to a current generation Manticoran SDP, your Leander really is obsolescent. No offense, Captain Francois. None taken, ma'am. Henriette Francois, Holman Sanders' flag captain, replied. The truth is the truth, she shrugged. I love Leander, and I'd hate to give her up, but she's the better part of 42 years old, and there's a limit to what upgrades and refits can do. Especially when someone goes and introduces a revolution in missile warfare, and none of the new launchers will even fit, Holman Sanders said acerbically. Well, yes, Truman acknowledged. But you're comparing her to current-generation Manticoran, Havenite, or Grayson ships, not one of which is even 10 T years old. And I think the point you need to bear in mind is that that's not who you'll be fighting if it comes down to it. Who you'll be fighting are the Sollies, whose ships are a lot farther behind the curve than yours are. Your ships are obsolescent. Theirs are obsolete death traps. Trust me, if it comes to a shootout with the SLN, your people will hold up your end. Maybe the newer ships will do the really heavy lifting, but your people will be a huge part of our defensive envelope. And with Admiral Foraker's latest version of the donkey, you've got a hell of an offensive punch, at least in the opening phase. I know, Holman Sanders said and snorted. Actually, I think a lot of it's simple envy. We want our new ships and we want them now. Of course you do, and they're coming. Truman picked up her cup and drank more coffee, then shrugged. Truth in advertising, though. They won't be here the day after tomorrow. I know. This time, it came out as a sigh, and Holman Sanders sat back from the table and crossed her legs. She and Francois knew as well as Truman did why those ships wouldn't arrive next week. The Grand Alliance had rationalized its industrial output ruthlessly. With most of Beowulf's heavy fabrication capacity dedicated to rebuilding the Manticore binary system after the Iwata strike. It hadn't ended there, though, because the Alliance's existing SDP strength was more than sufficient to handle anything the SLN had. Because of that, the proportion of Beowulf's industry not dedicated to rebuilding Manticore had been switched to the fleet support role, not new construction. 
Facilities like Evaldi of Beowulf had been churning out Mark 23 MDMs, Mark 16 DDMs, Ghost Rider drones, Dazzlers, and Dragon's Teeth. But while ammunition and spare parts were critical, future expansion hadn't been totally neglected. Other facilities were producing the components, like microfusion plants and miniaturized FTL comms. Haven's industrial base couldn't manufacture quite yet and that was likely to accelerate the delivery of Beowulf System Defense Force's first modern capital ships. Bolthole's stupendous shipyards had undertaken an ambitious construction program of SDPs built to a new common Manticore Haven design. Haven's basic technology in areas like FTL comms and missile tech, Keyhole 2 came to mind in that connection, remained significantly inferior to that of Manticore and Grayson but Bolthole's construction rate was almost as high as Manticore's had been at the peak of its pre-Yawada strike capacity. That meant there'd be a lot of new hulls remarkably soon, but they'd be completed in what could only be called a bare-bones configuration. They'd be fitted with engines, life support, point defense, counter-missile launchers, armor, missile cores and pod rails, broadside weapons and basic sensors, then transitioned to Beowulf's Cassandra Yards for the installation of Keyhole 2, FTL comms, and current-generation fire control and ECM suites to create an end product fully as capable as the RMN's Invictus class. Spreading production between multiple locations was enough to make any logistician queasy, given the way it multiplied potential failure points. If it worked as planned, though, it would increase building rates by something like 30%, provide complete commonality of weapons, support systems, spare parts, and maintenance procedures for all the Allied Navy's future construction, and get the first of the new ships into commission at least 16 months earlier than any other approach. And one quarter of all the ships fitted out here in Beowulf would be assigned to the Beowulf System Defense Forces component of Grand Fleet. But not tomorrow. Leaving aside your unbecoming greediness for new toys, Truman said now, her smile taking any sting from her choice of words, What's your assessment, your real assessment, Marianne, of your people's performance? Well, put that way, I'd say my assessment would have to be not too shabby, Holman Sanders said with an answering smile. Mind, I want more time for my people to work with yours. Not a problem now that Mycroft's operational, Truman said with a shrug, and Holman Sanders nodded. The Beowulf Terminus was critical to the Grand Alliance and the task of protecting it had been assigned to Task Force 31, the Manticoran portion of Truman's Third Fleet. Actually, she wore two hats, as the CO of both Third Fleet and TF-31, and her task force covered the terminus mostly because the Manticoran ships had the missile range and firepower to punch out any Solarian attack foolish enough to head its way. Politics and the need to keep foreigners out of the inner system had played their own part prior to the referendum, and however much Holman Sanders might have yearned for more modern ships, she'd never doubted her own super-dreadnought's ability to defend the inner system using the towed missile pods her allies had provided. But until Mycroft was able to relieve her task group of that responsibility, opportunities for joint training with the rest of Truman's ships had been few and far between. Now that Mycroft was online and had passed every check with flying colors, she'd been able to pull TF-32, Third Fleet's second task force, out of the inner system, join Truman on the Terminus, and start joint training with a vengeance. With that in mind, Truman continued, 
Captain Kovalenko and I have been thinking about the next exercise's parameters. Given the fact that your ship's current configuration gives them a massive initial throw weight, but very little in the way of sustained engagement capacity, it occurred to us that we might... Her calm pained suddenly, and she stiffened as she recognized the urgent priority signal. She raised her left hand in a hold-that-thought gesture and stabbed the acceptance key with her right index finger. Truman, she said, talk to me. Me, ma'am, Captain Benjamin Masters, her chief of staff said tersely from the display. System Defense HQ just calmed. They've detected incoming hyperfootprints. They didn't get a good count on the footprints, but the impeller wedges confirms a minimum, I repeat, a minimum of 400 point sources, most of them battlecruiser range. Holman Sanders inhaled sharply, and Truman's stomach muscles clenched. The Beowulf Terminus was 362 LM from the system primary, and Beowulf itself was currently in opposition to the Terminus, almost on the far side of the star. Even with the FTL comm, it took over six minutes for a message from system defense to come this far. Where are they? She heard her own voice ask with what seemed like preposterous calm. Opposite side of the system, 1.3 light minutes outside the limit, two degrees above the ecliptic, ma'am. System defense says they're inbound at 412 gravities from 002 on what looks like a direct heading for Cassandra. As of the time chop on the message, Distance from Cassandra was 7.9 light minutes, and current velocity was roughly 600 kps. From that geometry, they can cut the limits cord and make a zero-zero with the Cassandra yards in just under three and a half hours, with turnover at 96 minutes and some change. Truman nodded tightly. The Sollies had timed it well, she thought, because Cassandra was just past western quadrature from Beowulf, with its elongation perpendicular to the direction of the primary, forming a right triangle with the sun. They were well over 14 light minutes apart, closer to 15, really, so any grief headed for Cassandra was headed away from Beowulf. That was the good news. The bad news was that Cassandra was barely four light minutes inside the hyperlimit, and that the Sollies' astrogation had been damned near perfect. They could go for a zero-zero with the planet, spend a couple of hours wrecking its yards, and be back out and across the limit in less than two hours when they were done, barely eight hours after crossing the limit inbound. Or they could blow past in a maximum velocity firing run. If they did that, they could be at minimum range in just over two hours and 10 minutes, moving at almost 34,000 KPS, and arc back across the limit in another 100 minutes or so, in and out and back into hyper in well under four hours. The civilian casualties would be horrendous in a successful hit-and-run attack like that, given the limited time to evacuate the yards. Normally, that would have given an attacker pause under both the Deneb Accords and the Eridani Edict, but Solarian restraint hadn't been very noticeable even before the Mesa atrocity. Hypatia and the captured Buccaneer Ops orders were proof enough of that. After Mesa and the way the Solarian Newsies, which really meant Malachi Abruzzi, had portrayed it, Restraint seemed even more unlikely. Light off the impellers and spin up the hypergenerators, Benjamin, she said, and tell Steve to start plotting the jump. I want multiple options for intercepting them on their way out, whether they go for a zero-zero or a high-speed run. Yes, ma'am. Good. I'll be on the flag bridge in 10 minutes. Yes, ma'am. She cut the circuit and turned back to her guests. I think you and Henriette had better be getting back to Leander, Marianne. It seems we have guests. Yes, ma'am.
Holman Sanders' smile was two-thirds snarl. Hopefully, it'll all be over before we ever get there. That would be the best outcome from our perspective, Truman agreed. Aside from the two squadrons of Agamemnon-class BCPs of the Ready Response Force, Third Fleet's hypergenerators were powered completely down. The Beowulf Junction lay at the heart of a sensor bubble, 15 light minutes across that a microbe would find difficult to penetrate, and the fixed defenses were formidable. Under those circumstances, there was little reason to put wear on the hypergenerators and nodes by holding the fleet at instant readiness. The ability to stand those systems down was the real reason there were fixed defenses, and any admiral worth her beret was grateful for them. But there was, of course, a downside to that as well. Time. Time and situations like this one. It would take a Saganami-class cruiser 37 minutes, and an SD like Leander, or a Selak like her own Fafnir over 40, to bring up their generators and translate. For that matter, except for the ready response squadrons, Every ship would have to bring her impeller nodes up from scratch at the same time, and that alone would take 40 minutes. So not even the Saganami was getting into hyper any sooner than Fafnir. At six light hours, the transit would eat up another 27 minutes or so in the beta bands. She could car four and a half minutes off that by going as high as the gamma bands, but that seriously increased the chance of scatter when they re-entered endspace. Either way, she was looking at a best-case time requirement of well over an hour before she could be in position to intercept them on their withdrawal. And with their head start inside the limit, it was already impossible for her to actually intercept short of Cassandra. Apollo was long-ranged enough she could bring them under effective fire from outside the limit while they were still at least 90 minutes short of a zero-zero with the yards. But they were already technically in range for a cataphract launch of their own. Their accuracy would suck at such an extended range, but they demonstrated at Hypatia that enough cataphracts could kill anything, even with a lengthy ballistic phase in its flight profile. They might be as inefficient as a Neanderthal with a club, but if you had enough Neanderthals with clubs, that didn't matter. Worse, every minute they had to close the range would tweak that accuracy upward, and she couldn't take those minutes away from them. Shouldn't matter. She reflected grimly. This is exactly what Mycroft's for. And those poor bastards don't have a clue what's going to happen to them when Admiral McAvoy opens up. Not that I plan to sit on my posterior and wait. If nothing else, we'll probably need all hands for search and rescue after the shooting stops. She grimaced as that thought brought up pictures of Hypatia, but she made herself put it aside. I'll walk the two of you to the lifts, she told her guests and smiled thinly. It's on my way, you might say. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Jekowitz. And a pair of time-colored glasses with which to view the chronological strata of any present-day person and pick out their most embarrassing moment. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude for David Weber and Jacob Hollow, authors of The Valkyrie Protocol. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.